salvation, the key to your breakthrough. By now, you ought to have it memorized. Ecclesiastes 9 and 7 say it, seize life. Then we've been talking in Hebrews, from Hebrews 4, about the high priest we have in the heavens that we can touch and cause to be engaged and involved in our lives here. And this year, uh, we've been talking about things that people have done to cause God to become engaged, the Son of, of Man, Christ, to become engaged in their lives. I am fascinated, as I've explained before, by this, by this preoccupation, as it were, that America and the world presently has with movies about people that are empowered to do more than the normal or the average human being can, can do. There's been this proliferation of movies. All the comic book characters I grew up with are now on the movie screen. You know, I mean, everything from Batman to, you know, and now then uh, they've got all these other movies in a similar genre like like Limitless. And just the other day, the movie that's, that's at the top of the box office charts is a movie called Lucy. And that's about a girl who is just, as it were, very timid. Um, as it were, naive girl that is forced to become a drug mule and they put a sew something into her body, a drug, CPH4 is what I read in, in Wikipedia it was about. These things are fascinating me right now because, and I'll explain why in just a moment, but she gets abused and kicked and beaten by someone and it causes this CPH4 that she's carrying in her body She's a, an unwilling participant, but forced to be a drug mule, and it leaks into her bloodstream, and this particular chemical causes your brain to be enhanced, to develop more than, than what it uh, would ordinarily, and without this, and most people, this is true, only use 10% of their brain's capacity, and hers starts going up. I mean, in a parabolic curve, it just shoop. And she's using then 20%, then 40, then 60, and then 80. And the movie is based on the premise that with something being added to you, that you can then develop 100% of your capacity and go way beyond what other mere mortals are doing. Man, when I heard about that movie, I got excited. I don't. I, I can't. I recommend the movie. I, I don't ever recommend people go watch movies these days. And but I won't tell you what. It's like, hey, she must have got the Holy Spirit or something. That's it. You know, because that's the very essence of what the kingdom of God is all about. And if there's any foundational premise that underlines or is key to what I feel like the ministry God has called me to, to, to serve in and perform is about, it is this, that man fail. And that when he fail, he lost everything. Not just relationship with God, everything. And that Christ came to restore as the second Adam everything the first Adam lost. And since the first Adam didn't just lose relationship with God, but he lost divine dominion, the image of God, unlimited resources, unending seasons of harvest and multiplication and 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 peace and all of these other things i think that came to be restored by the that the second adam came to restore that as well however the enemy has lied to us and we're only just now beginning to realize it 
All these years, we've only focused on one thing, and that is get your heart right with God and have relationship restored. And God is saying, hey, there's so much more. Amen. You know, you're only operating at this much of your capacity. And so this teaching is, is that we can, the theme this year is we can touch God, the Son of God, get Him to be involved in our lives, and therefore draw from resources that are much greater than we would have as just mere mortals. Having stated that, look at Nehemiah 6, verses 1 through 9. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab. I'll just say this. With names like Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, that's a dead giveaway. These guys are bad characters, right? I mean, who names their kids? The rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it though at that time I had not hung the doors and the gates that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying come and let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono (laughs) that's pretty obvious anytime the enemy tells you to come to the plains of Ono you say oh no amen But they thought to do me harm, so I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times. The enemy is nothing if he is not persistent. And I answered them in the same manner. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me as before the fifth time with an open letter in his hand, in it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, there is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king, so come therefore and let us consult together. Now, it was the king, king Bab- uh, the king of Babylon, Darius, who had sent Nehemiah there to rebuild the walls. But now someone is questioning his motives and threatening to report back to King Darius that you are here because you're pursuing a personal agenda and you're trying to break away. You want to be king. This is what Nehemiah said. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. I'll just tell you this, what people tell you about you tells you more about them than it does about you. That's one of the things you learn in life. For they were all trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work and it will not be done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Father, today I pray that you will speak a divine word that will enrich our understanding and illuminate our minds to be able to see things as you see them, which is the prayer we always pray, that you would anoint us and help us to speak with clarity of thought and communicate the concepts and principles, the keys, as it were, of your word in a way that people can hear and receive and anoint this congregation to understand in Jesus' name. And everybody shouted out loud and said, Amen. Incredible keys to incredible breakthrough. We're still on key number 12, the key of extraordinary leadership. So let's continue our study of this amazing book of Nehemiah, one of the greatest leadership books I've ever written, that that has ever been written, I should say. And as I've pointed out all along, all of us are leaders in one way or another. And I continue to point that out because many people refuse today to acknowledge 
that they actually are a leader, whether they accept it or not, understand it or not, somebody is following you. I think of some of the professional athletes that have become so irate that we've read about over the last couple of years and because of their lifestyles and the clubs and the drinking and the violence and even the crime and the many children scattered across the country uh, that they, they leave, they don't care for. Some of them have retorted when confronted with this. Well, I'm not a role model. Refusing to acknowledge that there are kids out there that in, are still and indeed looking at them as role models. You can say it all day long that you're not, but you still are. Amen. That's just the way life is. And sadly, some people, because they refuse to acknowledge that they are leaders, do not then study good leadership principles that they can maximize what they actually are doing with their lives in this world. We think that being good in life is about developing the right techniques, being good at what we do. You're a doctor, learn medicine. You're a pharmacist, learn how to put combinations together that will create agents of healing and help people improve the quality of their life by making their health better. You're an attorney, know the law. You're an engineer, know the principles of mathematics. There's more than that. You can know all of that and still not succeed because you also need to know how to be a leader. Amen. And sadly, I know great speakers, for example, people in ministry that are incredibly anointed but they end up doing very little for God over the course of their life because they thought it was all about being anointed and never took the time to study how to become an effective leader. And so, oh, yeah, they can get you worked up, and they can, they, 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 they're anointed all right, no two ways about it. And they speak, and you feel something happen. But they never make fundamental change or bring about profound impact in the lives of people, though they are handling the most precious of all commodities, the Word of God, because they never learn how to help lead people. And so you cannot succeed in ministry no matter how righteous your cause or how anointed you are if you don't practice good leadership principles. I love John Maxwell's writings and have attended a number of his leadership seminars. John's always been very kind to me. First seminar I ever attended, I went there, I guess a thousand pastors there and and John walked off the platform to come down to me, picked me out of the audience, and said, I want to have breakfast with you in the morning. Had never met him, didn't know anybody there. I just walked in. I mean, I didn't know any of the other people that had organized the conference. And I asked him why. And he said, because you're anointed. And I see the hand of God on your life, and God has a plan for you. And he said, I'm about helping people be everything they can be. He walked out in the audience, and I didn't know it at the time, but also found one other man, and out of a thousand pastors that were there, we too met him that next morning. He then invited me to California when he was still in San Diego and went out there for a leadership a seminar of only 60, I think it was 60 pastors and Christian leaders in the U.S. I was flabbergasted. I was floored. Why would he pick somebody like me? I, he don't know who I am, but you know, he's always been kind, so I have to admit that I'm, I'm prejudiced when it comes to John Maxwell. But on the other hand, I have to tell you, his books like Leadership Gold, The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, Developing the Leader Within in You, and others, the others he's written, 
are outstanding resources. I also enjoy others. And I'm mentioning this because I've had so many of you that have contacted me while I've been in this mini-series on leadership that I'm soon about to conclude. And you've asked me, what are some good leadership materials? Well, I'm naming some of those that have blessed me. I enjoy Ken Blanchard. I enjoy Les Brown. I enjoy Jack Welts, a former CEO of GE. I've mentioned Sir Richard Branson before and his writings. I, he particularly inspires me because of his ability to think outside the box. Then when it comes to leadership, you need to understand this, that to lead people, you have to also build your inner person. You've got to develop inner integrity, and, and you've got to grow inside. You can't lead people beyond where you are. It's just they won't go any higher than you, and, and therefore you've got to constantly work on yourself. And when it comes to inner improvement, self-improvement, there's no better than Anthony Robbins or Jim Rohn or Susan Jeffers or Stephen Covey some of these others. Stephen Covey's advice that we should focus on our circle of influence rather than our circle of concern. It's one of the greatest teachings that's out there if you want to make your life succeed. But after having honored all of these, and I'll say this about this, if my mentioning these names in any way makes you question uh, because some of them, you know, might not, not mention God. I'll just tell you, every one of them aboard the principles of the Bible. That's all they teach. You pay 350 bucks to go to a seminar. They're teaching the Word of God without mentioning God. That's what they're doing. But after honoring them by mentioning them and either not others whom I have not mentioned, I must tell you that the single greatest leadership book I've ever encountered is the book of Nehemiah. It is awesome. It is challenging. The book of Nehemiah not only teaches you what to do, <clears throat> but it teaches you what not to do. And anyone who's lived life for any length of time comes to this point of revelation very quickly. That what you don't do is as important as what you must do. Knowing what not to do is as vital as knowing what the next step you should take is. Okay, joke. Three guys, friends, all graduated from university at the same time. They all went to different universities. And they decided to go down to Mexico to celebrate their graduation. And so they ended up partying a little too hardy and got so drunk they woke up the next morning in a Mexican jail only to find that they were to be executed that morning. And what's worse, they couldn't even remember what they had done the night before. So the first one, Henry, was strapped into the electric chair and was asked if he had any last words. And Henry said, I just graduated from Houston Baptist and I believe in the almighty power of God to intervene on behalf of the innocent. They threw the switch and nothing happened. The jailers fell on their knees, thought God must have intervened. I begged for forgiveness from Henry, set him free and he disappeared. The second guy, Bill, was led in and strapped in, and he was asked, do you have any last words? And Bill said, I just graduated from the University of Houston Law Center, and I believe in the power of justice to intervene on the part of the innocent. And they threw the switch, and once again, nothing happened. The jailers fell on their knees begging for Bill's forgiveness and immediately released him. The last one, Boudreaux, because I'm part Cajun, amen. <laughs> was strapped in and he says 
well, I'm from Texas A&M, and I just graduated with my degree in civil engineering. And I want to tell you boys right now, y'all ain't going to electrocute nobody till you plug this thing in. Amen. <laughs> Oops. Knowing what not to do is as important as knowing what to do. Do you agree with me? Amen. And so I've given you nine leadership principles. I want to move on to the, <laughs> to the tenth one now without reviewing the others. Let's look at leadership principle number ten. Nehemiah dealt with and overcame low morale and the objections of his team. Sooner or later... Your team is going to experience low morale. There will be objections, whether that's in your home, because as a, a dad or a mom, you're leading a family, whether that's in a ministry group, in your church, whether that's on the job, in your business, whatever it may be, your so social circle, your neighbors, sooner or later, your team is going to begin to object to some things, and they will be overcome by low morale. Listen to this, Nehemiah 4 and 10. Then Judah, notice who it is, then Judah wasn't Issachar, it wasn't uh, Benjamin, it wasn't Dan, it wasn't Reuben, it was Judah said this, the strength of the laborers is failing and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. The strength of the laborers is failing. Momentum, the big mo, it either goes for you or goes against you. And sooner or later, just like it did to Nehemiah, remember, Nehemiah has gone there with a king's mandate in the will of God. He's there to do the purposes of God through a series of miracles. God has caused him to be positioned in such a place that he is the one sent to head up this project of note. First of all, Esther is the woman sitting beside Darius and through God's own plannings and strategy has ended up being the wife of Darius to position her husband that when the need arises for someone to rebuild Jerusalem, that Nehemiah will be the one sent because God has purposed that 70 years of captivity, it's going to all end and Israel will go back to their homeland. And so Nehemiah, in the will of God, I'm, he wasn't out of the will of God, but in the will of God, in God's time, is in Jerusalem, and guess what? His team still experiences low morale. Momentum turned against him. Sooner or later, it happens to everybody, no matter how just and righteous your cause, Momentum can and sometimes will shift the wrong way. Just as it happened to Nehemiah, are you listening? It will also mark it down. You're not exempt. It's going to happen to you. It will happen to you. Nehemiah went to do God's work and everything seemed to be going the right way and then wham, momentum turned and what do you do when momentum suddenly starts going in the opposite direction is the lesson we need to study today. Because it will happen to you. Things will be going well and all of a sudden your family is under attack. 
You go to bed one night, you're having heaven on earth in your home. Next morning, you wake up, you wonder if there was an invasion of the body snatchers the night before. Is that the same family that I saw last night when I went to bed? They've been possessed since I went to sleep last night. And, you know, I, I got Chucky for a son now, and Jason moved into my house. And you know what I'm talking about? Just, I mean, all of a sudden, hell breaks loose. Momentum is going the wrong way. The business may be doing well. The ministry, the marriage, and then, huh, the business slumps. The family is under assault. The marriage hits the doldrums. It happens to people. Yes, it does. It happens to businesses. It certainly does. It happens to, to nations. If you don't believe that, look at what our nation has gone through. America, the mightiest nation in the world the last six or seven years, we have gone through a reversal of momentum. And yes, it even happens to ministries and churches. If you believe that churches and ministries are exempt, you need to read again the first three chapters of the book of Revelation because it contain, those, those, those chapters contain God's instruction and in letters to the seven churches of Asia. And they were powerful. Look at the book of Acts. They were mighty. But by the time John's on the Isle of Patmos writing, something has occurred. Beginning with mighty Ephesus, who has left its first love. Walking all the way down through Tyra, Pergamos, and Sardis. Compromised. And in one case, dead. God even says you're dead. All the way through to Laodicea, where Christ is depicted as standing outside his own church. Knocking on the door and saying, let me in to his own church. I mean, that's pretty bad. And God says they're so lukewarm that he would spew them out of his mouth. Oh, yes, yes, I'm telling you, that's the cycle of life. You can be fervent and red hot, and then somewhere along the way, momentum flips and reverses and goes the opposite direction. And you're wondering what happened. Nehemiah's team had become tired and as I said, this was the tribe of Judah that started the complaining. Judah means praise. Stay with me now. They were the worshipers. Do you remember when Jehoshaphat was faced by a multitude of invading army, uh, of, of, of an invading army so great that he couldn't see from one end to the other? And what did God say to that little group of people he led? He said, send out the praisers first. And let them go out and, and send them out because when people praise me, I do crazy stuff. There's no la logical or rational explanation for and And I just, I, I'm God and I still think I'm God. And I do all this God stuff just to prove it. And you praise me, I, I'll surprise you. Amen. I'll do some things. And, but what happened was the praisers even lost their praise. And now they're complaining and and they've grown weary in well-doing. And that's where the grumbling actually started. And notice, uh, I've never seen a problem that couldn't be made worse by people talking about it. I'm serious. No matter how bad it is, it, it, there's always a dimension where it can get a lot worse if you talk about it. 
And so they're, they're, they're complaining. And what are they complaining about? I, I just want you to notice this. Momentum has shifted. And, and those who were, who were praising have now become, begun to grumble. Have you lived long enough to discover that in life your strongest advocates could be those that complain the most about you tomorrow? I'm preaching better than some of you are responding. Some of those that are singing your praises today can be telling everybody your fault, faults and flaws come sunrise tomorrow. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm being real with you right now. Somebody that, that can't see any wrong in what you do by this time next week can't see any right in what you do. I mean, momentum goes for you or it goes against you. And it's not necessarily anything you've done. Nehemiah didn't do a thing to deserve this. He went there in the will of God, was doing the will of God. And all of a sudden, momentum turned around. You know what the problem was? The scripture said the reason they stopped praising and they began to complain the strength of the labors failing is there was so much rubbish that they're not able to build the wall. Rubbish, junk. Do you get tired of the junk you got to go through to do what God called you to do? Anybody in this building get tired of rubble, tired of rubbish? Get tired of the junk that you got to face just to get something done? God tells you to do something and then you got to deal with the junk. You can't even do what you're supposed to be doing because there's so much junk you got to wade through. And I mean, you're in the will of God, but there's just junk everywhere. And by junk, I mean the rubble and the mess that was left from the ransacking and destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians that had to be removed before they could even begin to rebuild the wall. And I, I just want to ask you, you start out to get somewhere, do something right, and before you can even get going, you got junk to deal with. Am I the only one that's ever had to face that Amen. The enemy understands what we might not understand. You see, he was trying to make Nehemiah's team become weary in doing well. And what does the enemy do when you get tired? He ratchets up the pressure to yet another degree of intensity. That's what he did to Nehemiah. That's what he's going to do to every one of you. You hadn't experienced it yet? Just tap your neighbor and say, hang on, it's coming. Amen. You'll, you'll get there. Amen. The enemy went from creating the distractions to outright plotting to kill Nehemiah and the workers. You see, the enemy knows something. And that is, is that it takes teamwork to make the dream work. You can't do it by yourself. Amen. If you've got a dream, you're going to need a team. I can just tell you that. You don't get the dream done without a team behind you. And what the enemy's trying to do is destroy your dream. God give us Josephs that no matter how dark the slavery or deep the dungeon, we never stop thinking of the dream. Because what God wants to do is do something incredible. What the enemy wants you to do is get your eyes off the dream and focus on the junk. Start looking at the trash, look at the rubble, look at the difficulty. Amen. And some of us don't have any better insight than to do exactly what he's trying to get us to do. We get our eyes off the dream, start looking at the rubble, the junk that we're walking through. Amen. 
everything we have to face to be able to make the dream work. Nehemiah 4 and 12, and our adversaries said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. Ultimately, what the enemy is doing is when they're tired, momentum is going the wrong way, he's kicking up the intensity, ratcheting up the degree of stress because what he wants to do is kill them. Now, it's not really about them because they just happen to be the ones doing what the enemy doesn't like and doesn't want done. So he says, we will come into their midst and kill them and cause, are you ready for this, the work to cease. Are you not putting that verse up there? That's Nehemiah 4 and 12. Find it for me. We will cause the work to cease. What is the enemy ultimately hoping to accomplish here? He's ultimately wanting you to stop what you're doing. I need somebody in the building to help me just a moment and, as it were, communicate this. So if you would just turn to somebody and say, it's not even about you, would you do that? But it's about what you've been sent to do. As a leader, Nehemiah did not allow adversity to discourage him. He knew that if he became discouraged, others would as well. One of the things we need to do is in life control our emotions, as I have often said, or if we don't, our emotions will control us. As a leader, whether that's in your home, listen up, dad, mom, whether that's in a ministry, whether that's in a church, that's in your business, you have to learn to keep on smiling. You got to take a licking and keep on ticking. Amen. You say, oh, but you don't know what I'm going through. Oh, yeah, it's junk. We all face it. Amen. It gets in our way. We're trying to all build a life, build a destiny, build a future, but we have to wade through junk to get there. You don't think that, the, that, the, that a leader has influence on the attitude of those around him? Look at this. Laughing Buddha, I'm going to show you in a moment, is a website where you can go and you find a lot of comedy and even a lot of Christian comedy. And I want you to look at this. This was put together. This was a little experiment done at a tram station, and this is from YouTube. Watch this if you don't think your attitude affects others. Ha, 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 ha. 
Total, complete strangers. Even the lady reading the book couldn't, had to give in. She was doing her best to stay out of what was happening. But listen, somebody's following you. And your attitude is going to determine someone else's. And so Nehemiah looked at this team against which attacks and, and, and accusations had come. And he encouraged his team. He regrouped, as it were, and encouraged his team to up the level of their game. Nehemiah 4, verse 13 through 14, Therefore, I position men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the leaders and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. Say that. Remember the Lord. One more time, help me. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. Tell somebody else, great and awesome. Amen. And fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your house. The first thing Nehemiah did is reminded them that the force behind them was greater than the opposition in front of them. I need to tell somebody that no matter what you're going through, the power inside of you is greater than the power that you're struggling against right now. Oh, bless the name of Jesus forever. Hallelujah. Amen. That God inside of us is more than a match for anything you're going to face. If God be for us, who can be against us? Oh, amen. Amen. And then he asked them to remember that the breakthrough they were seeking, are you re ready? Listen, wasn't just for themselves. It was for their brethren, their kids, their wives, and for their house. You hearing what I'm saying? Turn and tell somebody again, it's not just about you. But it's about your kids and your family, and it's about your house. I've got a word for somebody. You see, what God is doing is building you a house right now. What does that mean? God's never just interested in blessing one person and then letting you live and march off into the sunset and then letting the mantle fall to the ground. He's got somebody that he wants to have that mantle passed on to. There's a reason God wants to bless you because you got some kids that are going to be more anointed than you are and God's building somebody a house. Christian Tabernacle. I want to tell you it's not even just about us in this room, but God is building this church a house that long after we're gone is still going to be impacting Houston and the nations of this world. The enemy doesn't want you to have a house. Amen. It's about your house or future generations. It's not just about you. And you know what they did? They pushed on in spite of their weariness and stress. God came through for them by bringing the strategy of the enemy to naught. And I want to tell you that when you push on and you don't feel like it, that's when God brings the strategy of the enemy to naught.
I'm preaching right now. Oh, hear what I'm saying. Ministries have to push on. Churches have to push on. And can I tell you, families have to push on. When you don't want to do it, you got to push on anyway. Because as you push on, the enemy, after a while, his strategy starts falling apart. Businesses have to push on. In the middle of a recession, you just got to keep on pushing on. And in the middle of a social hour when the, when the world is not hearing what you're saying and, and the world has turned a deaf ear to the claims of Christianity, you know what the church has got to do? Preach it anyway and push on. Would you say push on? Amen. And you know, you know what you got to do when nobody appreciates what you're doing in, for them or on the job or in your neighborhood? Look at somebody and say, push on. Would you do that? Because you push on and God will cause the strategy of the enemy to be brought to nothing. Listen to this. Nehemiah 4.15. And it happened when our enemies heard it that it was known or heard that it was known to us. That is, that we figured out what they were doing and that God brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. What happens when you push on? God brings their plot to nothing. I've got a word for somebody in this house. I'm preaching right now, but something just walked into this building. God is bringing the strategy of the enemy against you to nothing while you're sitting here. Because you're pushing on. Amen. You came here and waited through hell to get here. But while you're in the presence of God, God's bringing the strategy of the devil to naught. The plans of the enemy are coming unraveled right now. Confusion is reigning in the camp of the enemy. You walked in not knowing how you were going to make it, but you're going to leave here today and the plans of the enemy are falling apart. Somebody, give him some praise right now. Somebody, give him some love right now. Huh. You came in here with trouble in your family, but because you pushed on anyhow, the strategy of the enemy is falling to pieces all around you. You're having problems in your finances, but because you pushed on anyway, the strategy of the enemy is coming to naught. Oh, I've got a word for somebody. Tell someone God's building you a house. He's building you a house, a legacy. Amen. Give him some praise. I feel a breakthrough in this room. Something's coming down. Reach up and get it. There's your breakthrough here right now. You wanted it? It's here. Woo! Bless your name. Bless your name. Bless your name. 
push on. Tell somebody, push on. Push on anyway. Push on when you don't feel like it. Be not weary in well-doing. Don't let the shift of momentum in the opposite direction cause you to stop. Keep going on. Be seated for a moment longer. You can either step back for a moment from the problem and remove the emotion and realize what's actually happening and as a result of that, watch God cause the strategy of the enemy to fall apart or you can panic. Amen. And continue to deal with it. You see, if you can remove the emotion like I taught last week and then just look at what's left, not get all perturbed and upset, don't look at the rubbish, look at the Lord. Remember the Lord. That's what he said. Oh, who is great and awesome. I love that. He told those that were confounded by rubble and junk, remember the Lord. Amen. And if you can remove the emotion in the middle of a reversal of momentum, remember the Lord who is awesome and powerful and great. God will cause the enemy's plot to become unraveled, as I said. If you panicked, give up. Blame God. Sound familiar? Get mad at everybody or succumb either to self-pity or to pity. Uh-huh. The enemy's plot succeeds because that's what he wants to make happen. He wants you to panic, wants you to give up, wants you to blame God, wants you to get mad at everybody, wants you to succumb to self-pity or to pity. You say, isn't that the same thing? No, it isn't. I asked you last week, have you ever sent out invitations to your pity party and nobody showed up? Everybody here raised their hand. Let me tell you what's worse than nobody showing up when you have a pity party. What's worse is when somebody does show up. Because you don't need pity, amen. What you need is somebody to help pull you out, not somebody to just talk about how life is being unfair to you. Don't give me pity, give me a hand up. You hear what I'm trying to say right now? Some people think that ministry is feeling sorry for somebody, having pity on them. No, real compassion pulls them out. There were a lot of folk that pitied the man with palsy in Mark 2, but there were four guys that didn't pity him. They climbed up on top of the roof with him, tore the roof off, and got him a miracle. There's a difference in pity and compassion. Oh, what am I saying? I need your compassion, but pity won't help me. And the enemy wants you to panic, give up, blame God, get mad at everybody, succumb to either self-pity or pity from others. Why? Because then he can succeed in making you stop what you are doing. In chapter 6, the enemy even sent word to Nehemiah telling him, come and meet with me and let's discuss the problem. I told you, there's not a problem you'll ever face that can't be made worse by talking about it. I'm helping you right now. Nehemiah knew not to leave what he was doing to go talk about it. That's what the enemy likes. He likes to talk about it. And you listen to all the talk, and the next thing you know, it gets your eyes on the rubble. 
Amen. Instead of what God is doing. You need to do what Nehemiah did. I love his answer. Nehemiah 6 in verse 3. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go meet with you? Amen. Tell somebody I'm doing a great work. Oh, say it like you mean it. And you are. God has a great plan for your life. God has a great destiny in store for you. Don't come down. Tell somebody stay on the wall. Would you do that? Don't bother talking about it with the enemy. All he wants to do is get you out there so he can assassinate you. And Nehemiah saw through his plot. And so I want you to say, I'm, again, I'm doing a great work. Say it like you mean it. I've got a great life. I've got a great family. I've got a great future. I've got a great tomorrow. I've got a great home. I've got a great church. I, God is on my side. I've got a great God. I've, I've got a lot of great things going on in my life. I'm not going to get caught up in talking about rubble, rubbish, not dealing with junk anymore. Amen. And just tell somebody again, I cannot come down. Help me and lean over and tell somebody near you the enemy has failed. I figured out his game. I saw through his con. Amen. His strategy has been brought to nothing. I came in here today. He had plots and plans. He was conniving and scheming. But I'm leaving out of here and he's going to have to go back to the drawing board. He's going to have to start all over. I'm walking out of here today. His scheme has fallen apart.